You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Advent is a a time of, of mystery. It is a time where we keep silence because as we contemplate the the emptiness, the exile, the the despair into which our our Lord is born, uh, we are brought to our knees in that kind of silence. It is a time where, at the beginning of the Christian year, we have the opportunity to reset our lives, to think again about who and what... uh, who God is and and what God is doing in in the person of of Jesus Christ. And so as we contemplate that mystery, we are doing so this year from uh, a text in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, a text that all four of the gospel writers allude to as they write about the birth of Jesus and the announcement of his coming through uh, John the Baptist. But it is a, a text also about a people in the context in which it was written, a, a people living a life that they had not expected to live, a people defeated by their enemies and wondering if God was going to somehow come to their rescue. In some ways, Isaiah 40, really, the whole chapter simply answers two questions. And the first question is answered in the first 11 verses that we've dealt with, uh, George and I, over the last two weeks. In verses 1 through 11, the question being asked is, does, does God still love us? Or has God given up on us? And the prophet breaks into the sadness and despair of that and says, uh, by all means, God loves you. Uh, God is coming to come alongside you, to comfort you, to encourage you, uh, to, to show up in your midst because the voice is sounding in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he will come and, and he will bear his arm like a mighty warrior and yet also feed his flock Uh, like a gentle shepherd. So the the first question is, does God still love us? And the the answer is yes. But the second question really grows out of the first. It it is begged by the the first question, and that is, does God have the power to deliver us? In verses 12 through 26, the prophet is really addressing himself to to this particular question, for it, it may indeed be that the people can say that, yes, God still loves us. Yes, God still has a relationship with us. But does he have the power to deliver us? For as we look out at our lives and we look out at the, the power of our enemies, it does not feel like God has that kind of power. And so what Isaiah does is invite his people to to listen once again to the word that they need to let go of their negative comparisons of God with with the the conquering powers, and to lift their eyes to see not who they think God might be, but who God actually is. And so let's look at Isaiah 40, uh, verses 12 uh, through 26. And I will read that for us. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has instructed him? 
Whom did he consult for his enlightenment? And who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. See, he takes up the isles like fine dust. Lebanon would not provide fuel enough, nor are its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A workman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. As a gift, one chooses mulberry wood, wood that will not rot, then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when God blows upon them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name because he is great in strength. Mighty in power, not one is missing. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, direct our attention away from those things that tell us about what is not and what we are not. Direct us away from those sources of desolation and despair. And by your spirit, lift our heads, lift our eyes that we might see who you are and where you are and how you are active that we might participate in that. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was listening to the radio a couple of weeks ago on my way into work and in between the music, a a commercial came on and the announcer's voice sort of surprised me with this urgent message. He said, people are looking at your toenails. (laughs) Well, once I regained control of the car at the thought of it, who? Who's looking? How? How can they see them? Why? Why are they looking at my toenails? He came back and and told me it's because of the scourge of onychomycosis. Toenail fungus, to be uh, specific about it. What impressed me about this commercial was especially 
just the way he told me that people are looking at my toenails. The, the emphasis on the word are. People are looking at your toenails. You may have convinced yourself that they're not looking. You may have boldly decided to wear sandals again. You, you may have thought that no one cares about those thickening, yellow, chipped, cracked toenails of yours. But no, people are looking. <laughs> so beware. Be very afraid. Now, forgive me if in making light of this, I am making light of something you are struggling with. (laughs) I do not mean to do that. What I mean to do is to draw our attention to the absurdity of the marketing that we are subjected to every single day. Because it's just like this. You know... He wasn't asking us if we wanted to live healthier lives or to have uh, feet that are more comfortable in our shoes. He was inviting us to consider the fact that we might be grossing other people out. And based on that alone, we ought to do something because no one wants to look at your toenails if they look like that. It's crazy, but daily we are subjected to this kind of message, this kind of message that invites us to a place of comparison and gets us to think very fearfully about all that we are not so that we might buy a product that will make us all that we ought to be. So what, you are no doubt asking, does this have to do with Isaiah 40? Well, what it has to do with Isaiah 40 is that this ad is just more one of the more recent and one of the more absurd examples of how comparison and fear are messages that, that we hear constantly that in some ways they even drive our economy, of our consumer economy. The messages are things like you're not what you could be or you should be, so become it with our product. Compare yourself with the others who have this and, and, and who you are and who you are not should drive your behavior. What it is, is it's trying to get us to attach ourselves to some ideal that we ought to, to claim for ourselves and that maybe we don't have and to strive to be it or to do it or to, to have it. And I want to submit to you that it is from the pit of hell. But we live with it every single day. Every single time I walk into baggage claim at SeaTac and I look up at the Abercrombie and Fitch uh, sign that's there, I ask myself the question, does Abercrombie and Fitch sell clothing? (laughs) For invariably, their male models seem to not know that they're advertising clothing. (laughs) Am I supposed to buy that T-shirt that he's not wearing because I think that underneath it I'll look like that? (laughs) I don't. It's kind of like Harry Potter's invisibility cape, uh, you know, that put on our T-shirt and and it'll all go away. (laughs) 
It's, it's craziness. But it is a world of comparison that we are subjected to daily and it produces the corresponding disease of envy. Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan preacher, no, no relation to me, but um, I heard him speaking once and, and he said that there's a Franciscan saying that comparison by its very nature is demonic. Because it's about noticing and fixating on and aspiring to become some ideal that we are not. It's about focusing on what is not and then marshalling all of our energy to go after and go get it. And it robs us. Here's what's evil about that. It robs us for grati- of gratitude for what is. And it often replaces that gratitude with the scourge of envy. Envy for what we are not. And that's where the people of Israel lived a lot of their lives. Any casual reading of the Old Testament will tell you that God's people struggled incessantly with a negative comparison of themselves with the nations around them and thus the temptation to want what was theirs, the the other nations, and to neglect God in the process of, of envying those nations for it. You go back to the story of the Exodus, and the people are delivered from slavery in Egypt, of all things. You know, a, a long-term, several-generation slavery. God, uh, through the leadership of Moses, escorts them across the Red Sea, brings them into a, a, a brand-new place free of, of Pharaoh's tyranny, and as they're struggling to become a new people and are hungry, they look back longingly at Egypt and say, oh, it was better then. At least we had three square meals a day. It might have been slavery, but this, this dependence on God and this, this unknowing sort of desert existence, nah, that's, let's go back to what we had. Negative comparison, envy. Or once they come into the land and they start noticing the the nations around them who had had land and had been established, once they started moving from a people of the desert, a wandering people, to to a people who were at an agrarian society, who were planted in a city and planted in a place, they began to look around and say, you know, our God is really a God of the desert. He was really good at bringing quail and manna, yeah, and he was good at the, at the, the water from the rock. But we're in a different place now. We are planting crops like all these other people, and they've got these gods. They're really cool. They're called fertility gods. Um, and, and so why don't we bring a few of those into our lives as well, because they probably know more about growing crops. Comparison and envy. Or another case, the other nations have kings. We don't have a king. They seem to be doing better. They, they're better at raising armies. They're, they're, they're more powerful than we are. If we had a king, then everything would be great, and, and we'd be wonderful too. Or later on, when they began to, to struggle under the threats of foreign powers coming in and, and destroying them and occupying them, when they began living under as... Their kings began living as vassals under a more powerful emperor. They started to learn the game of, of diplomacy and going about other, 
other conversations with nations to uh, to try and build their own power. You know, we don't have armies that are very strong. And, and Egypt, now Egypt, they've got a really strong army. And the Assyrians are being pretty obnoxious up in the northern kingdom. And so why don't we go to Egypt and, and ask them to to help us uh, against the Assyrians because they, they have more power than we do and they could help us. The story of God's people, literally the story of all of us because the Bible really is our story, not just Israel's story, is the story that we're not like the other nations and we want to be. We need to be more like them because people all around us are saying, where is your God? People are looking at our toenails. The whole negative comparison with the, the earthly powers is, is where Isaiah is addressing himself in our text for today in the 40th chapter, beginning in verse 12. He's talking to a people who are bereft, a people who are defeated, a people who are not living the life that they had planned and who are looking at their lives and wondering who and what God might be because he's nothing like who they thought he was. And so they ask that question, like I said, in the first 11 verses, the answer is given. Does God still love us? Does, does God still want relationship with us? Or has he, as the psalmist says, um, shut up his mercy and his wrath? Well, that question is answered unequivocally and profoundly in, in those first 11 verses. Yes, God is, is coming to you. The voice, even in your wilderness, is announcing his presence. When he comes, the, the, the earth is, is going to be transformed. He wants to comfort you. He wants to come alongside you. So don't look just at your destruction. Look at what God is doing to show himself to you because he will come. Not only with the might of a warrior, but also with the gentleness of a shepherd. But then the second question comes. All right, you still love us. You still love us, but here we sit in the clutches of our enemies and wondering if you have the power to deliver us. Because as we look at the rubble of our city, we don't see anything that reminds us of certainty and power and presence. What we see is a scene of devastation that seems to intimate your absence, God. So maybe you just don't have the power to do this. And what Isaiah's message is to his people in light of this is a call to stop digging that pit of comparison. If you read this text, you'll see over and over and over again this call to avoid comparison. To not compare God with anything because he is beyond comparison. Beyond any category that they might have assigned to him. And so the prophet is saying that the earthly power of your conquerors is no match for the power of God. And even though you can't see that right now, even though you seem to be looking into a contradiction of that truth, pay attention to the fact that God is bigger than your projections of God. God is bigger than your conception of God. And direct your gaze away from the power of your captors, away from the thing that you envy, and lift your eyes and see the Holy One who will not let go of you. Lift your eyes to God. 
And really what Isaiah is doing is making two main points in this text. And he repeats them several times and in several different ways. But the first point that he's making is, remember that God is always greater than your depiction of God. This is a hard thing for any of us to hold on to, for we get in our minds that we know exactly who God is and exactly how God should act. And then when he doesn't, our faith is is brought to this place of crisis. And so the prophet says, God is always greater than your depiction of him. Never forget it. And the way that you can remember it is turn your eyes first to creation. Look at creation and tell me if you can comprehend it. Look at creation and tell me if you can measure it somehow. Can you measure the waters in your hands? Can you, can you somehow understand how much Mount Rainier weighs? Look, look at creation and, and see. Look, look off to Lebanon, one of the great nations that you envy and there aren't enough trees in Lebanon and enough animals in Lebanon to please God with, with burnt offerings. Creation is, is grander. So take a look at that. And can you, can you comprehend the mind of God? Can you somehow download the wisdom of God and, and have that contained in your own head? Can you gain complete access to what, what God might think and, and when he thinks it? Well, the answers to both of these questions are no. It's, it's only God who can, can do these things. And so remember that God is always greater than your depiction of him. You may think you know who he is, But as with any relationship, the moment that we have someone in a box, we stop growing in that relationship. Don't settle for simply your depiction of who God is because God is always bigger than the way that you represent him. But then Isaiah gives a second admonition. In order to keep from digging yourself that pit of of comparison, Remember that the nations with whom you are so enamored are merely a drop in the bucket. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. When the breath of the Lord blows upon them, and they are as nothing. Any student of history knows that empires come and go. It is a good thing for us to remember as we are on top that empires come and go. I remember a... a, a teacher uh, during a British history class in, in my freshman year of college, and he brought in a, a colonial veterinarian who had been in, in one of the African English colonies toward the last days of the, of the empire. And, and as at the, he was talking about the end of colonial rule in Africa, and um, he looked at us at the end of, of his, of his in, uh, lecture to us, and he said, remember, empires rise and fall. The same message is being given here in the scriptures. No one's on top forever. And these, these countries with whom you are enamored, they will at, at some time fall as well. The, the Babylonians are going to be replaced by the Persians. The, the Babylonians replaced the Assyrians. They come and go, says God. 
So God is always greater than your depictions of him. A few years ago, uh, James Loder, uh, when he was still alive, he, uh, he's a prof- he was a professor at Princeton Seminary. He came here and he taught a, a class called the Holy Spirit and Human Transformation. And uh, I remember much about this class, but one of the most profound moments in the class was when he was praying. He was here for four days and he prayed at the beginning of one of the classes. And this was his prayer. Um, he was silent for a few moments. We were all bowed in prayer and then he said this, we are about to do what we cannot, and that is to speak of you, O God. So have mercy on us as we attempt to do so. God is always bigger than our depictions of him. And so what Isaiah says is release your stunted notions of God and turn your eyes away from comparison with the nations and turn to the face of God. And the invitation comes clearly in verses 25 and 26 of our text today to whom where the the voice changes in this text and it changes from the prophet talking about God to God himself talking to the people. To whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them by name. This is an image of the stars. God is not one of the luminaries, as the pagans believed. God is not one of the stars. God made the stars. Calling them by name because he is great in strength, mighty in power, and not one is missing. It's the same message as in the 121st Psalm where the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills from whence does my help come? I lift my eyes to the hills because it's on the hills that the altars of all of the foreign deities were set. It was on the hills that you looked for help because there you went and made sacrifices to these foreign deities. And so he said, I look up to the hills, but where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help doesn't come from the hills. It doesn't come from the gods that I have manufactured. It doesn't come from what I have produced to quell my own fears. What it comes from is a who. The Lord who made the hills. So look beyond the hills. Lift up your eyes and see that there is some one behind those hills who is greater than the hills themselves. In 63 B.C., the the Roman armies marched into Jerusalem uh, to occupy it. And the story is that as they came and and occupied the city and and, uh, overthrew the leadership, in order to establish uh, their own form of peace, which essentially meant tyranny, (laughs) that the general, Pompey, uh, who was leading this particular force, was impressed that the priests of the temple continued to offer sacrifices and continued with their rounds, even as the city was being sacked by the Romans. So Pompey, a student of the the, uh, cultures that he conquered, uh, wondered why this was the case. And, and he figured to himself that, well, this God of these people, this God who, 
who made everything, as they say, this, this God who is greater than all other gods and the only true God, according to them, he must be really something. And so Pompeii, with the interest of, a, of an anthropologist or a sociologist, basically went into the temple and, and violated the spaces that no Gentile was supposed to ever violate. And they had to let him in because they had become a conquered people at that point. And he walked into the temple. He went to the holiest of places. And he came to the Holy of Holies. And he pulled back the curtain to see what this God looked like, who these people worshipped. And guess what he saw? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because this God was beyond all representation. Because this God was bigger than any image. Because this God did not need to be made of, of wood that didn't rot and covered with silver and, and then attached to the floor with chains to keep him from toppling over. This God was the maker of all things. He pulls back the curtain and he sees nothing. And I'll bet that day Pompey's idea of who and what a God is changed. For what could this mean? How could a great God be represented by nothing of human making? Well, it's because he can't be represented fully. And that anything else by our attempts to do so would just distract our attention away from the one who really is. And to keep us from lifting our eyes to that place where we would see him. Well, there's a certain risk in coming to this point of realizing that God is bigger than our, the things that we project onto him or the depictions that, that we make of him. There's a certain risk in doing this. For what it means is that our notions of God get challenged at that point. Especially if we have those notions challenged at, at the point of a significant loss or, or grief like these people were having. There's a risk when we let go of those attachments to those depictions of God, those projections we put upon God. There's a risk in seeing nothing behind the curtain and feeling like it is indeed nothing and that God has gone away. But nothing can also experience, give us the experience of looking beyond nothing to see who God really is. There's a risk that we have to take in doing that. It's the risk of releasing our stunted perceptions of who God is. And it means that God is no longer in our box. And we have to live in awe before the one who is unknowable and yet makes himself known to us and reaches out to us in relationship. There's a risk when God is no longer in our box because the relationship becomes wild and mystery gets introduced into it. Because what happens is that maybe when God is let out of our box, he's no longer the vending machine who wants to give us what we want if we come up with the right payment for it. If we do the right things and follow the right rules, then God will certainly bless us, won't he? Or maybe we have to let go of the disapproving parent who we keep at arm's length and we don't really like being in the presence of that parent, but we acknowledge his existence and we're just glad that he's a little ways away. Or maybe we're no longer seeing the benevolent caretaker of the universe 
who got it all going and now has stepped back and is just kind of letting it all happen. Any one of these three conceptions of God are, are not that far from any of our experiences. But when we pull back the curtain and we see that he's bigger than all of those things and we have to let those things go, we have to take a risk. We have to take the risk of humility as we enter into the mystery of relationship with this one who can never be fully apprehended or understood, but wants relationship with us and is pursuing it. We have to take a risk. But the good news is is that God takes a risk as well. Is that in his majesty and his grandeur, Our God does not come to us with the lightning bolts of Zeus or the storms at sea of Poseidon. Our God comes to us very differently. He comes to us as a vulnerable baby in a manger and as a man sharing death with us and for us on a cross. There is much that we do not know about God, much that we do not understand and see. But we need to keep in mind that he's reaching out to us nevertheless. We need to keep in mind the invitation to lift our eyes and to see who is, who the one really is, who is there, who is inviting us to relationship. We need to keep in mind this admonition from the writer of Hebrews who says, as it is, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels and is now crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, take us beyond our stunted perceptions of who you are. Move us into that place where we understand you're always more than we think you are. And then allow that mystery to drive us deeper into relationship with you and to acknowledge that you have indeed come, are with us, and will not let go of us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.